are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Perhaps every night before you go to bed, you are watching your favorite episode of your favorite sitcom or cracking open the Dr. Pepper or Mr. Pibb. Or perhaps you find yourself um, listening to Christmas music. After Thanksgiving, or if you're one of the righteous ones, you start the day after Halloween. These are traditions that we give ourselves to, but I want to communicate something very clear. Our rhythms, our traditions, our customs, they do something. They shape us. They determine who we are. They not only shape us inwardly and it works itself outwardly, but they also proclaim to whom we truly belong. With the things that you really want to do, you'll stay up late. You'll get up early. For the things that you truly give yourself to, you will inconvenience yourself because deep down you find yourself loving them. There's a, there's a calling, there's a higher calling to the things that we truly and deeply care about. Sunday morning worship is a tradition that we rally ourselves around because we recognize, even if we can't express it, that deep down there's something that is being communicated about brothers and sisters created in the image of God, gathering together, lauding and showering God with what is due him, which is honor, reverence, and worship. Amen? There's a beauty in being reminded of the past. So I want to caution those of you who come out of a church culture that is perhaps adjacent to this um, novelty, maybe a little addicted to being novel. Uh, if you, maybe, maybe you cringe when you hear songs like uh, Near the Cross being sung in the old, in the old style. I want to highlight that for the Christian, there's a consistent rhythm being prescribed of being reminded to rehearse and to rejoice in the things that proclaim that this is where the Lord has brought us from. Uh, tradition is not something that should be assigned with old, worn out, uh, old fogey, dusty cobwebs around it. Tradition is something that draws us and brings us together. So when Paul uses those words, he says, remind these people in the Cretan church, he's saying, invite them into a healthy rhythm, a healthy tradition. He goes down a litany of lists. He says, uh, I want you to remind them to be submissive and, and obedient. I want you to remind them to be um, to obey governing authorities. I want you to remind them not to quarrel. I want you to remind them basically things that come as pretty common sense. But he recognizes that because as the word of God uh, proclaims, our hearts are wicked, we need to be reminded. We need to rehearse, lest we are prone to wander away from the truths of Scripture. Paul says, remind them. Well, remind who? Remind the Cretan church. Uh, and so, by extension, he's telling each and every one of us that we need this reminder. He first starts off by saying, I want you to remind them to be submissive to who? To rulers? To authorities? I want to provide some examples of what this looks like in modern day. Who is a ruler? I mean, obviously, we don't, uh, we don't sit under a king anymore, but you could say that our mayor or our police officers or uh, fire department members, these are rulers. These are people who wield authority in our everyday lives. Paul is saying, hey, man, in your everyday interactions, submit to the authorities that are around you. This is all this all has this evangelistic bent. He's trying to say, I don't want you to corrupt the brand of the faith. I don't want you to corrupt the brand of Christianity. So don't be like those other people causing a ruckus and quarreling and always causing um, friction in the community. I want you to portray a posture of peace, 
amongst the people. Not only that, but he says be submissive to authorities. Well, this would include government authorities in our modern day, um, perhaps experts in a given field like the law or medicine, um, church authorities, deacons and elders and pastors, um, and authorities even in the workplace. So yes, that manager who you don't job well with, Paul is saying, I want you to go out, go out your way to be submissive to them. Um, Romans chapter 13 oftentimes has been leveraged as a do what the government says uh, without question. Sometimes that can be leveraged in an abusive way. I just want to read Paul's language here from Romans chapter 13. It says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority given except that which God has established. God, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then yeah, you should be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Here's something that my pastor growing up would always say. It's not submission, if you agree. It's not submission when it jobs well with all of the things that you find to be kosher. It's truly not submission when you agree with every job and tittle. It's only submission when you have to do the hard work of wrestling on the inside and out of a reverence for God, submitting to the path of leadership. But what happens, John Tavius, when governments are wrong? I'm glad you asked. If governments are wrong today, it wouldn't be the first time. What about uh, during the days of segregation? Perhaps it was, it was legal to deny people certain rights based on their anthropological makeup, based upon their skin color, or how much melanin they had, or what kind of language or culture that they espoused. In those moments, the government establishing a certain law does not make it right. And yet, Paul still calls us to something that transcends even broken systems. I would say that the extremist patriot might say that a person should always follow and obey his country, no matter what the command is. And as will be shown, it's not supported by scripture. It's not even supported in the history of uh, nations. Uh, during the Nuremberg trials, the attorneys for the Nazi war criminals attempted to use a defense that said that their clients were just following orders. I'm just, I'm just going on with what, the, what my leader told me to do. And therefore, I should be held responsible for what I've done. However, one of the judges in this time dismissed their argument with one simple question. But gentlemen, is there not a law that exists above all laws? That's the reality of what we've bought into and what we've become a part of. We have become a part of a law that reflects the heavenly kingdom of God who shall return and set everything right. So in our everyday goings and our everyday doings, when we're submitting to a boss at work or to the traffic light or the police officer or the governing authorities, we're doing so not out of reverence just for them, but out of reverence for a king who soon shall come and he has the highest authority. Uh, the position that the scriptures uphold is one of biblical submission. The Christian being allowed to act in a civil disobedience to the government if the government commands you to do what is evil, such that it requires the Christian to act in a manner that is contrary 
to the clear teachings and requirements of God's word. I think there's a time in scripture when Israel went away from the way of God, stopped respecting the highest law, and the Bible frames this as everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You can go all the way back to uh, the book of Exodus where you had these Hebrew midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh essentially to kill babies who were, uh, excuse me, male babies who were born to the Hebrew Israelites. And yet they disobeyed the command of Pharaoh out of reverence for God. Not only that, but you have Rahab clearly disobeying the governing authorities when the Israelites snuck into Jericho while she was commanded not to help them. She allowed them to escape through her window, thus disobeying the governing authority. Or even First uh, Kings chapter 18, where you have Obadiah, who the Bible describes as fearing the Lord greatly. When the queen Jezebel was killing off God's prophets, Obadiah took a hundred of God's prophets and hid them from her so that they could live. What you see in each and every one of these acts of civil, submissive disobedience is as a threat to life and death. And so the highest law that we submit ourselves to greatly values the Imago Dei. It suggests that every person is created precious in God's sight. And you've learned this even as children. Jesus loves all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. It's something we learn from as little children. It's something we learn from early on. And yet, somewhere along the road, we begin to complicate and convolute and corrupt the command of God to love our neighbor as ourselves. Such an act of defiance is a clear uh, disobedience to the ruling authority. That's what you see in the Old Testament. And yet, modern-day Christians... Yeah, we should resist a government that commands or compels evil. But we should work nonviolently within the laws of the land to change a government that prevents evil. Simple disobedience is permitted when government's laws are in direct violation of God's word. If a Christian disobeys an evil government, unless he can flee the government, he should accept that government's punishment for his actions. And that's where we sometimes can get into trouble. Because so often here in the West, our Christianity is expressed through this uh, leveraging of our rights and our freedoms and what God says, yet we don't want to suffer the consequences of that posture, that planting of that flag. Here's the posture that Christians ought to adopt. Every day, we ought to engage with thanksgiving. For as Ephesians chapter 5 says, give thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, submitting yourselves one to another in fear of God. For even in Romans chapter 13, Paul lays out that not only are we subject to governing authorities, but governing authorities are subject to the highest authority. And so when we do so, we do so believing that there is a soon coming king. This is why sometimes progressive leaning, progressive leaning uh, expressions of Christianity that harp on trying to make the kingdom here. And now, if you really press into their eschatology or their belief about the end times, it, it goes very um, vaguely defined. Because they're trying to realize it in the here and now, and yet the Christian is called to express a hope that believes in the already, but also the not yet. Paul says that you need to remind them to be obedient and remind them to be ready. When I was uh, coming up um, in high school, we played sports, and we'd always gather around like, before the football game, and we'd sing this like, we ready chant. We ready, we ready, just to kind of get ourselves pumped up. They ain't going to get blown out by Oberlocker by 63 points. <laughs> but before the kickoff, man, we were excited. We were bought in. 
And that's kind of what Paul is asking Titus to remind the people of. He says he wants them to be ready, but not just ready to go make a tackle, not just ready to go fly off at the mouth. He says, remind them to be ready for every good work. Can I tell you something, church? Every work that people are ready for oftentimes isn't a good work. Ultimately, Paul is saying that I want you to be ready to do what is good amongst the people, amongst your community. He also says, remind them to speak no evil, to not be slanderers. He's harping back to the same language he used back in chapter 2 where uh, he likened slander to working in concert with the devil. A slanderer, Diablos, is referencing the enemy, who is called an accuser of the brethren. He also says to remind him to do what? To avoid quarreling. Now, it's important here to highlight what Paul describes as quarreling versus what might be considered confrontation or conflict, which the latter, these things are natural parts of community. They're natural parts of life or family and relationship. An example would be what Paul does in Galatians chapter 2 when he says, I had to confront Peter to his face. I don't think this is what Paul has in mind when he says, don't give yourself to quarrel. The Bible says that when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he had first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some of his friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what Paul is not saying is that we should not have ever have any conflict. He's not saying that we should never have any disagreements. He's not saying that we can't engage in conversation. What he's saying is avoid endless quarreling. He even goes further in verse 9 to describe what that looks like. He says avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. What is he suggesting? When you know what was happening in the church, you had these people of the circumcision party who essentially were demanding that people adhere to the Jewish commands of the law in order to be considered righteous, and in order to be considered uh, acceptable amongst God's people. And I think we do the same thing today. Obviously, it's not uh, through circumcision. It's not through these keeping of Jewish customs and Jewish laws. Maybe we have our own cultural customs that we demand that people adhere to before we consider them to be acceptable. That's one of the things I love about our gathered worship. It's one of the things I love about being a diverse church is that we are welcoming. We are including. We're proclaiming a gospel that is for all people. So when someone doesn't cook like you cook, they cheer for a different team that you cheer for, than you cheer for. Maybe they're from another side of the town that you come from. Maybe they use shorthand language like Ebonics. Don't use these as a means to relegate them to the margins of worth and value for Jesus loves all the little children, whether they use shorthand language or whether they can speak the king's English. Sometimes I just on purpose, sometimes I just on purpose use shorthand language just to communicate model that just because a person doesn't speak the king's English doesn't mean that they are any less in the kingdom of God. For Jesus, he reigns over a kingdom that we call the upside down kingdom where the way up is down, where the way forward, maybe looking back and being reminded of where the Lord has brought us from. Not only that, but in verse 10 and verse 11, Paul says, for a person who stirs up division, a person who demands that everybody look like me, every person adhere to where my, my cultural customs, he says, this person, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is twisted, he says, he's warped and simple, and he himself is self-condemned. 
You ever notice that people who demand that people, others, uh, adhere to their tertiary, their non-gospel requirements, most of the time they find themselves living in isolation. And if you really want to peel into it, they can't even live up to their own um, broken and corrupt standards of holiness. Paul says, remind them to be gentle. And here it is to show perfect courtesy to some people, to all people. Perfect courtesy. Now, he didn't just say courtesy, that, you know, uh, we'll welcome you, welcome you in under these conditions. No, Paul says, show perfect courtesy to all people, which is far-reaching. It reaches out and it welcomes people beyond just uh, those who look like we look or talk like we talk or dress like we dress or drive what we drive or live in our certain tax bracket. Paul says, show perfect courtesy. That means sometimes we're going to have to go out our way to make people feel comfortable who don't come from our particular culture. Any ministry practice that isn't built on the inclusive foundation of gospel truth will inevitably morph into a pharisaical legalism that shuns those outside of the core group's personal comforts. What am I saying there? What I'm saying is that when you demand that people, you know, reach your uh, theoretical circumcision, that they dress a certain way, that they worship a certain way, what you're inevitably doing is relegating the minorities in the, in the congregation to the margins. You're suggesting that what you do and what you bring is not important. And Paul says, I want you to be reminded that that's not the way, that you ought to be gentle. Paul says, listen, if anybody has some reason to boast, if anybody can meet the cultural T's and cross the cultural T's and dot the cultural I's, I can. This is exactly what he says in Philippians. Hey, hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Hey, um, I worship by the Spirit of God and in glory in Christ Jesus. I put no confidence in the flesh because I got every reason to be confident. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel. I'm from the tip-top tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. After the law, I'm a Pharisee. I was trained by Gamaliel. My parents have bequeathed to me an inheritance that is from a lineage that dates back before my great-great-great-great-grandparents. And yet Paul says, I count these things as rubbish. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all these things, and I count them as rubbish, just so that I might gain Christ and to be found in him, not having this righteousness that comes from myself, this righteousness that comes from how well I keep the law, how well I navigate the social taboos of a given culture, but this righteousness that depends and comes from God. He says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And I want to share, not just in his glory, I want to share in his sufferings. Because, brothers and sisters, to follow the way of Christ, to adhere to the higher kingdom, the law that transcends the brokenness of this world, you will be rejected. Jesus says it this way, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Whenever we find righteousness and things that maybe go beyond the gospel message, we invariably relegate God's precious people to the margins of our wish dream of a community. Bonhoeffer says that we all have a wish dream when it comes to church. We have an idea of what it should be like, what kind of songs we should sing, what time we should start, what people should wear, who is that in my parking spot. We all have a wish dream when it comes to church. And yet he says it's the grace of God 
when God takes that wish dream and shatters it against the ground so that we might see him more clearly and engage in community in a more pure way of heart. The best way to cut down Pharisee legalism is that our wicked hearts, to know that our wicked hearts are prone to wander. And that's why Paul says, remind, remind. This is a continuous word. It's not like, hey, remind them once. He says, remind them every single time you gather together. It's just like the same thing that we, when we gather for communi communion or we sing these songs that communicate the same truths. I love it when we sing those um, 7-Eleven songs, right? Same seven words, 11 times. I love it when we do that. Why? Because we're being reminded of these deep truths. I don't care if they're simple. The sentence is just, God, you are good. Because sometimes when life hits you, you feel with sickness, divorce, you've had to bury a loved one. Sometimes you need to be reminded that God is good, even in the midst of hard times. And that's why I love church traditions and expressions that are tethered to antiquity. It's sort of a, this unverbal way of communicating that we run this race before the great cloud of witnesses who've passed this faith down to us. So let us not be too hasty in trying to put a new spin on our old song. Maybe there's something in that old expression that we can gain and we can learn from. Amen. Paul doesn't just say remind them, but he even goes further. He says, remind them a few things. He says, I want you to remind them to remember when. And this is where all his uh, his um, cautions sort of hinge on. Because a healthy part of the Christian life is to look back on, as the black church would say, look at where the Lord has brought us from. He says, for we once, we once were foolish, disobedient, led astray. What is he saying here? He's saying that the only way you can truly show this inclusive gospel truth to other people, the only way you can show perfect courtesy to somebody who talks different than you or differently than you do is by remembering where the Lord has brought you from. Solely looking at how the Lord has saved you, recognizing that you were once seeking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply staying within, sinking to rise no more. You had no hope. And yet the master of the sea heard you and lifted you from those depths. See, you have to have a sober view of yourself in order to truly love God's people in a way that reflects Jesus' kingdom. He says, don't be foolish. Don't be disobedient as you once were. Don't be led astray as you once were. He also says, don't be slaves to these things. What is a slave here in this letter and in the larger context? When we hear the word slave, what are we really thinking of? I know what you're thinking. Oh, you're thinking about the transatlantic slave trade. We already dealt with that a couple weeks ago. You're right. But more importantly, under the surface, calling someone a slave has an anthropological assumption embedded in it. It suggests that they are worth less than a, a, a free person. That's why Paul uses this language when he talks about sonship versus slavery. He says, don't be slaves to various passions and pleasures. Don't be slaves like passing your days in malice and envy. This was the thought back then in the Cretan environment of all slaves. That's why Paul says when you go to work, slaves obey your masters because oftentimes there were slave rebellions. So if you at work as an enslaved person, and you're kind of not being submissive to your master, you might be associated with the next slave rebellion that happened down the street. He says slaves were also hated by others. Not only that, but hated one another. It's uh, the language that Tolkien used when he describes Smeagol or Gollum. 
He says he hates and loves the ring the same way he hates and loves himself. Because anytime you're subjected to a subhuman standard of living, slowly you begin to forget that you are created in the image of God. So there are some people who need to be affirmed and reminded that you are a child of God. You are not what the world says that you are. You are not the tale, but you are called to a kingdom that transcends the brokenness of this world and its tertiary labels. So Paul uses this language not to condone or to put a fist behind the transatlantic slave trade as some people might try to uh, leverage this text to mean. Paul says that, no, we have been called into sonship, daughtership, daughterhood. We're no longer slaves, but you're a child of God. It says it right here in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope is not put us to shame because God loves his love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, I want you to remember that your righteousness, your, your motivation, the gas in your tank for showing perfect courtesy, for being submissive, and to not quarrel, the gas in your tank is to remember what God has done for you. Paul says it this way, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Another way to put that and modernize that language would be to say, at the bustle. Uh, God, right before the clock ran out, he reached down and saved you. But can I tell you something, church? What might be the right time for your salvation, what might be the right time for your sanctification, your development, your Christian maturity, your walk down the path of looking more and more like Jesus, that timing for one person looks different than the timing for somebody else. What if we had met Saul before he walked down the road to Damascus? See, that's why you can't relegate people as righteous or unrighteous based on where they are in a particular season. We may have just caught them before the Damascus Road experience where they meet the Lord and are changed immediately. Remember who? He doesn't just say remember when. He doesn't just say look back and remember when God brought you and saved you. He says remember who? Essentially what he's saying is we didn't save ourselves. God did. But when goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now that word there, loving kindness, I love it. It's, it's this word, hesed. It's suggesting that God's kindness is so good that I can't just limit it to kindness. I have to add loving to it. But it's so kind that I can't just leave it at loving. I have to say loving kindness. It is God's love that transcends all of what we can do. There's no amount of love songs, no Chris Brown, no Usher, no Drake, no amount of love songs that can communicate the love that God has for us. He says, when his loving kindness and our Savior appeared, he, he saved us. According to, I love when he uses like this double negative, his own mercy. No mercy in and of ourselves. It's like God took out his lasso and he just reeled us in. So we couldn't do it on our own. He uses this same language in 1 Corinthians. When he's talking to the Corinthian church, who you know they kind of had gotten beside themselves and they were partaking in the Lord's Supper, and then the people who were favored, who kind of had all the Jews, they were eating first and they weren't even concerned about the people who were relegated. Paul says, Who here can claim to be wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolishness and wisdom of the world? So since God in his wisdom, he did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
or Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he says, consider your calling, brothers. A lot of y'all were not wisdom according, or were not wise according to worldly standards. A lot of y'all were not powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And yet he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. What is Paul underscoring here? He's saying that you didn't save yourself. It wasn't how fresh you got or how hard you worked in school or how much um, proclamation and acclaim you might have gotten on your job. It doesn't matter how gifted and talented you are. You have been welcomed into this kingdom on a pro bono basis. God reached out to you for free so no one can boast. He says, no, I want you just to remember when, but I want you to remember who. And then he also says, I want you to also remember how. Paul says, there's this evangelistic impetus to why we do what we do. He says, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, you were basically saved by the washing of regeneration. Now, I want to I press in on some of the husbands here again. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by what? The washing with water through the word. See, back in this time in an agrarian society, you know, if you weren't a hunter or a farmer or a shipman, I mean, you really, you wasn't eating. And so oftentimes, uh, women in this day were relegated to just monitoring the home. But you know what that meant? That meant that things like washing, that was woman's work. And so what Paul is saying, no, 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 I want you to wash your spouse in the word. I want you to give yourself. I want you to submit yourself. I want you to humble yourself and take on what may not be as uh, honorable in our culture. I want you to embrace that for my sake and for my kingdom. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives with their own bodies. But he who loves his wife loves himself. I'm preaching to myself on this point. I need to be reminded that there is no, um, there is no delineation between the genders that makes my life comfortable while my wife struggles. This washing, this renewal, this regeneration, it's only me imitating what has been deeply planted within me, which is the Holy Spirit. In the same way that he washes me, I am to wash those around me who I'm partnering with. He also says the renewal of the Holy Spirit is when he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul says, I want you to re reiterate the message and I want you to imitate the methods. As recipients of God's grace, we are to be conduits of the same grace that we have received. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's trying to call people to something higher beyond the bickering and the, and the, the, the sex and the, the quarrels groups who disagree with that group. He says, no, you belong to something higher. Carry yourself as such. He says, I want you to remember when. I want you to remember who. I want you to remember how. And he also says, I want you to remember why. 
Because all of this is to maintain the brand of the faith on the island of Crete. There's an evangelistic impetus and an evangelistic framing behind Paul's language here. He says, I want you to insist on these things. What things? The things that are trustworthy. Why does he keep reiterating what's trustworthy? Because we on the island of Crete. Everybody's a swindler. Everybody's a swindler. Everybody's a charlatan. Everybody's a fast talker trying to manipulate you out of your coins or your jewels. Paul says, I want you to trust that what I'm telling you is true. This comes from the God who does not lie. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to do what? To devote themselves to good works. What are good works? Things that are excellent and profitable for people. So in our outreach and our engagement in the community, what is the bent towards human flourishing behind what we do? One of the things I love about a ministry like Families Count is that the impetus behind it is that we want to see families flourish. It's not about us coming together, taking a quick picture and posting it on social media. No, we want to see families flourish whether we get the glory or not. Ultimately, that's what God is calling us to because our engagement with the people around us, it adds to the reach of our message. Ultimately, we want to adorn, we want to season the teachings and the doctrine of God with our good works. We can't remain faithful without abiding in God's truth with our lives. So we want to see humans flourish, whether that means that we're going to distance ourselves, or that we want to keep people from getting sick, or we want to wear a mask. We want to do everything in consideration of the next person. We want to love our neighbors as our very self. Much of Paul's writings prescribe a rhythm of remembering the past in order to preserve the future. As he prepares to wrap up his letter to Titus, Paul echoes the same refrain of remembrance and rejoinder found in many of his other letters. Here Paul leverages that to live out the purpose for which God has redeemed us, the Cretan church must remember the truths about what God has done for them. Every work of ministry that isn't built on the foundation of gospel truth inevitably leads the church astray into self-promotion of cultural comfort that callously shuns outsiders and frames the lost as enemies rather than the harvest of Christianity. And thus the Christian life of evangelism is tethered to an ebb and a flow of reminding, remembering, rehearsing, and rejoicing in the truth of the gospel message. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that your truth is not super complex. It's not for the important folks. Thank you for reminding us that our call transcends the comforts of this world. And so at times, it will be uncomfortable. Lord, help us as we peruse your truth, to remember that you suffered on our behalf, that you stood in our place. Help us to have courage to plant our flag on what you stood for, valuing others beyond what the world was calling. Father God, help us to remember that you are the one who saved us. It was not us Help us to 
be reminded through song and sacrament to have a clear and sober vision of you and a sober vision of ourselves. Help us to see you high and lifted up. The cherubim around your throne. Help us to confess honestly. Woe is me. I am undone. Not only is, am I a broken person, but I exist amongst a, a community of broken people. Help us to leverage and, and, and throw ourselves at your feet, knowing that there is grace there. That we can be assured of your coming kingdom, that we can be assured of your love to sustain us on the long road home. Help us to remember when we were lost. Help us to remember why we are commanded to go out. Let's give ourselves to the simplicity of rehearsing your gospel message. Let's not to grow addicted to the fanfare, the self-promotion. Let us to lean into the simplicity of gospel truth. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.